Welcome to A State of Mind, this is Julian Royce. First, a few announcements and some quote-unquote housekeeping. First of all, I love creating this podcast, and without listeners like you, there really would be no point. And creating this podcast does take time, it takes energy, it takes money. So if you've gotten value from listening to it, please consider making a donation or supporting it in some other way, such as sharing it with friends or in your social media. And I am linking below my Patreon page, as well as my Venmo. I work here in Boulder, Colorado as a therapist, as a coach, and as a meditation teacher. You can learn about my offerings in all those realms at stateofmindcounseling.org. And I apologize for, I'm a little bit under the weather today. <laughs> so if a snot bubble comes through the screen, I apologize for that. Um, finally, as some of you know, I have been a guitar player my whole life. My father's actually a professional musician. And over the last year and a half or so, I've been developing my skills at DJing. It's been a lot of fun. I have DJed at things like dance parties and different events, and also for ecstatic dance, which is something I really love. You know, ecstatic dance is really a transformational technology that I've seen benefit so many people. And one of the things I love about it is it's open to everyone. There's really no right or wrong way to do it other than, you know, short of causing injury or talking on the dance floor. That is one rule we have. In fact, I'm getting ready to fly to Guatemala at the ungodly hour. I'm leaving for the airport at like 2.30 a.m for an ecstatic dance festival, so I'm super looking forward to that. And lately I've been offering some ecstatic dance DJ sets with live improvisational guitar, something I'm really excited about. Um, it's felt really good to me, I've gotten good feedback, and I'm gonna be sharing more of those to my SoundCloud. So check out the show notes below for a link to my SoundCloud. Please check those out, let me know what you think. And another announcement is, I've gone back to previous episodes I did with my friend, Dr. Robert Love, they were episodes number 66 and 67, entitled Brain Health and How to Prevent Dementia, Alzheimer's, and Strokes with Dr. Robert Love. And then we did another one called Jordan Peterson and the Culture Wars. They were great episodes, um, so I'm gonna be republishing them with a new intro. So please check those out if you haven't listened to them. They have lots of helpful tips and techniques and things you can do to improve your health, both in the short term and long term. And um, yeah. You know, I've just I've recorded a lot of episodes, I think a lot of really good ones, and it's a, it's a bit of a shame that there's so much um, coming out all the time. It's a bit of a shame when these older episodes get missed. So if you're new to the podcast, I would highly recommend those two, and just recommend if you want to take the time to scroll back through some of my previous episodes. In fact, on the podcast website, I have highlighted some of the episodes that I consider to be some of the best that we've had here. So for this episode, today I'm very happy to be speaking with Sarah Schley. Sarah is a filmmaker and an author. She shares how it took 25 years and seeing five different psychiatrists before she received the correct diagnosis, leading her to finally receive the correct medication and treatment for bipolar two. It's a story worth hearing from her and it reflects some of the real issues in our mental healthcare systems and our medical healthcare systems in general. Um, one out of four people who appear to have major depression actually have a form of bipolar. And something like seven million Americans have a bipolar brain. So it's great to have her on the podcast. She's doing a lot of good work to shed stigma around issues like this, which is something I fully support. And she's just an inspiring speaker of a wealth of knowledge. Without further ado, I bring you Sarah Schlate. Sarah Schley. Sarah, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me, Julian. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. I was, I'm excited to get to talk with you. Um, you have, I listened to your TED Talk about your journey with bipolar, and you're coming out with a movie called Brainstorm. Um, do you want to just share a little bit by way of introducing yourself and the work you're doing now and what you're wanting to share with the world? Sure. Um, well, I live with bipolar two on the bipolar spectrum mm -hmm. and it took me 25 years and five psychiatrists, seven medications to finally get the diagnosis that saved my life. And, uh, so, and there was a lot of pain, heart, pain and heartache in those interim 25 years, as you might imagine. Uh, a few years ago, I came out with my memoir called brainstorm from broken to blessed on the bipolar spectrum. And I did that, um, really to illuminate this whole notion of the bipolar spectrum that most people don't know exists. And then the movie, the film, um, inspired by the memoir is 
taking that whole message further. Good. Yeah. I think films are such a powerful way to reach more people, but that was a point I wanted to ask you about and, and learn more about your experience and your perspective in the greater, you know, field of mental health and health, just healthcare in general. But like, it, it took you so long to get what you realized was the right diagnosis. Um, do you want to share a little bit more of that if we double click on that? What happened? So, you know, I think what happens for people like me, so the so the bipolar spectrum, I want to put the question back on you, Julie, and I know you're a therapist, <laughs> I believe, so you may know the answer no, to this. No, it's totally fair. But yeah. when I ask people, you know, if I'm in a room of 100 folks uh, and you ask, um, so when you hear the word bipolar, what comes to your mind? And if I asked you that, what would you say? Well, um, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, if I kind of put myself in the average person's shoes, they're mm -hmm. thinking of um, bipolar, two poles, like manic depressive. And everyone's exactly. manic yeah. depressive. And, and so, yeah. That's, you know, that's how 98 out of 100 people would answer the question. And so most people think when they hear bipolar, they think extreme highs, extreme lows, right? Extreme mania. Um, irresponsible behaviors, you know, radical, uh, dangerous behaviors, maybe psychosis, and then severe depression. Mm -hmm. But in my case, uh, where I have bipolar two and other bipolar bipolarity or bipolar types down the spectrum, I uh, experience the severe depressions of bipolar, but I don't experience mania, nor do I show extreme mania. Mm -hmm. So my sort of, um, you know, baseline is high energy. And no one would argue with that. Like she's a high energy gal. She's getting a lot done, right? Yeah. I don't I don't kind of cross the threshold into what people would normally think of as mania or those dangerous behaviors. And so when someone like me shows up at the doctor's office, when are we going to show up? We're not going to show up when we're feeling good. We're going to show up when we're in a debilitating, horrific depression. And in my case, right. yeah. I wouldn't even take myself there. It took friends dragging me um, mm. to get me there at that point. We can say more about that. But then what are the symptoms that a doctor's going to see when I finally get to a psychiatrist? They're going to see, you know, somebody lethargic, somebody who can't get out of bed, somebody who has no joy left in life, somebody who might have suicidal ideation. And they're going to think depression, you know, mm -hmm. that's um, let's write a script for an antidepressant. And in many cases, they're getting it wrong. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you do a good job talking about that. I think um, I wrote down some notes here, something around 50 million people are living with depression in America. Is that right? And then you said in one of your things, one out of three people diagnosed with depression actually have bipolar disorder. Yeah, I would think up to one out of three. And th those, um, you know, numbers are debatable because everybody has a different study, but but a very large percentage and certainly millions of people, when you think about it, um, are are going to be misdiagnosed as with regular man major depressive disorder, given antidepressants, which in some case, in my case, can make people much worse. Um, and that's a problem. And why further it's a problem because where are you going to go to the doctor when you're feeling lousy? Most people don't have a psychiatrist or they don't want to go to a psychiatrist because of the stigma. They're going to go to their primary care physician. Primary care physicians, and I can tell you this because my niece just went through it, seven years of primary care doc training. Hmm. How much psychiatric training did they get? Oh, not much. <laughs> One month. One month. So, yeah. So, That's for wild, the, right? yeah. so 80% of antidepressants, Prozac, Lexapro, Zoloft, any of the ones you want to name, in this country are written by primary care docs, 80%. And they've had one month of psychiatric training. You know, they can't right. help but get it wrong. They haven't been trained to recognize and be able to discern the the various types of depression, including bipolar depression. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you just are raising so many such important points so early on. It's like my I can feel my mind like, you know, talk about <laughs> a lot of down. these Unpack it at the time. It's what the yeah. it's what this podcast is for. But I think, I mean, I think one thing that pretty much everything in America, everyone in America could agree on, you know, there might it might seem like our country is so divided, but I think we mm -hmm. can all agree that our um, healthcare system is a mess, right? I mean, doesn't yeah. I don't hear anyone out there being like, "Oh, I love our healthcare system," and the problems that I see in it like actually go really deep. And so, just as an example, my brother and his wife are both medical doctors. They went to medical school. Um, mm -hmm. I've learned in my life, and you probably have, know this too, and if you talk to most people, it's common sense. We've learned how important nutrition is, how important yes. nutrition is to our health, our physical health, our mental health. Yeah. Um, so my brother in his eight years of medical school training had uh, one class on nutrition. <laughs> and when I say one class, it wasn't um, a course. It was uh, a lecture. It was like a three-hour, you know, one day. 
one class. Oh my gosh, I know that's just crazy. And so um, a similar issue with mental health in general, it's so important. We know how important it is. It's luckily the awareness of that is growing, but the traditional medical school training, of course, doesn't really go there. doesn't really cover it. And the psychiatry profession, in my opinion, has been completely co-opted by the pharmaceutical industry. So that they, they know a lot about medications. That's great. But there a lot of them today. I mean, it, not everyone's the same. Different psychiatrists have had different trainings, but in general, they're going through medical school and learning a lot about psychiatric medication, right? They're not um, learning as much about different forms of therapy. Like that's, that's what I do. What I can provide is the more personal one-on-one, um, personalized therapy. So it's just, it's a complex thing, but there's, there's these big like forces that are at work. And then I just, I've hear a lot of, um, stories from people who do have a psychiatrist or have been to a psychiatrist and it wasn't a very good experience. And maybe they had 15 minutes with someone, they diagnosed them and they wrote them a medication script. And then they said, we'll talk in a month or two over zoom again. And so it's not very personalized. It's not enough time to get to know the person. It's not enough time to make a true diagnosis. And then on the flip side of it, a lot of people in my shoes who are working in the therapy world, um, they do have a lot of great skills and techniques and they're good at um, different forms of therapy and healing, but in general, not going to be great at diagnosis, right? And why should they be? Because they're not, that's not the, it's just not these, these different parts of our medical system aren't all working together in the ways that they, they could be and should be. So, right. They weren't trained for that. They weren't trained for that. Yeah. Right? yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, but in your case, you're sharing something important that the, this big distinction between bipolar one and bipolar two, bipolar two, not having the manic episodes, um, often appearing like depression, right. And be misdiagnosed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The medication that you're getting could be, could be not, not just the wrong medication. It could be damaging. It could be, it could set you back. It could mess up your life. It can, it's going to change your whole balance. And that's yeah. scary. It's scary for people to think about that, but I think it's important to share. Yeah. Well, a couple of things you've brought up a lot of important points too, Julian. Yeah. So a couple of things on that. So it took me 25 years to get my diagnosis, but also to accept the fact that I live with a bipolar brain. And that was really important because I was like anti-medication, right? I was like, probably like you, holistic health, you know, mm -hmm. yoga, meditation, rest, diet, exercise. It took me a long time to recognize that, that those were all really good practices. But in my case with bipolar, not sufficient, right? So the way I view it, um, some of my my psychiatric colleagues, now friends, uh, talk about four dimensions and I put them in a diamond because I like models. And mm -hmm. that's medication, therapy, support network, and um, positive behaviors, all the, all the double click on that and all of your diet, exercise, meditation, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And I think for someone like me, good news and bad news. I mean, the challenging news is you're going to have to do it all. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> and the good news is that if you do, you can live a beautiful life that is full and healthy and where you're thriving um, and where you can be a positive inspiration for other people. Like one of my friends said, you're my true north on self-care. And I said, yeah, because you don't know what's on the other side of that for me. Like, I can't take the risk not to do this stuff. But so I think it's important for people to think about probably in all walks in life, a both and right. Mm -hmm. It's it's not either or it's like both. I think my diagnosis took my therapist and my psychiatrist working together, mm -hmm. you know, and thank God they finally did. The first four psychiatrists had it wrong and made me worse. The fifth mm -hmm. psychiatrist, Dr. Michael Perlman here in Western Mass, God bless him. He's about to retire, almost 80. Uh, he, you know, had taken the responsibility to study the complexity of bipolar. Mm -hmm. And as a result, he knew what to look for. And so it took him 15 minutes to diagnose, diagnose me because he asked the right questions. Yeah, he knew what to look for. Yeah. Well, you've been on quite a journey. I'm glad that you've gotten to the place where you're feeling pretty healthy. Like you feel like you've gotten to a good place with it. Is that, does that feel accurate? Yes. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. yeah, very accurate. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think that, you know, what I tell people is when you're in a crisis mode, uh, and this is, again, the nuance part, like when I'm in crisis mode, if I'm in a full-blown bipolar depression... All the yoga, diet, and exercise is not going to get me out of it. Mm. Sorry. However, I think doing those things when I'm well are preventive. Sure. Yeah, that, that makes, makes sense. sense. Totally. So, yes. so I'm very rigorous about in in my um in my TED talk in my book I talk about PECs because again I like acronyms and models. So do you know flex your PECs? It's physical, emotional, creative, and spiritual. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm very rigorous about all of those uh, practices. And we can talk about more examples. Um, but yeah, I think, I think doing those things and there's more and more research 
that supports um, the positive practices being preventive of of bipolar flares. Well, that's good a to hear. Of yeah. Mine. Yeah, my, yeah, my wonderful, uh, inspiring um, psychiatrist friend. She's become become a friend. We've worked together, Dr. Holly Swartz. She's about to come out with a book um, called Social Rhythm Therapy, all about circadian rhythms and those practices as preventive for bipolar. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, I was actually yeah. looking at, um, I think it's the Mayo Clinic website. I was like looking up about more about bipolar before our conversation and yeah. recommended that kind of therapy, social rhythm. Is that what it's social called? Social rhythm therapy. Yeah, that's that's um, what Holly does and many other people. And again, I would personally say it's not going to get you out of a disaster, but it can prevent it. So the, where I'm at now is like, I know if I'm getting a little bit overly stressed or overly burnt out or whatever, I'll go back to the basics. Mm. of those practices. And it turns out for bipolar people, the most important thing is a steady wake up time early oh. with the sun. That's so interesting. Yeah. Because it's when you're when the light hits your eyes. And I actually even use a dawn simulator right now, which is recommended by another psychiatrist friend, Dr. Jim Phelps, 30 bucks on Amazon. They're good for anybody, but when it starts to get dark in the Northern hemisphere, like you and me are. Um, and so it's not, you know, the light's not coming until 7 a.m. Maybe the dawn simulator go later goes on at 6.15. And oh, the light keeps up slow. Yeah. And so early uh steady bedtime, steady, steady wake up time, steady bedtime, very important. And then, you know, diet, exercise, et cetera. Yeah. That's and a, I can say more about all of those things. <laughs> that's a good example of technology being helpful and something that's, you know, not too expensive to get. I mean, it must be much more challenging when you're traveling, right? Yes, travel is is challenging, and that's important because so so it turns out like so for the film, we've been researching um the cutting edge brain science about what around bipolar and my partner in the film, her name is Bonnie Walt. She's a director and she's a, um, she's a science documentarian for Nova, et cetera. So she was very interested in the science of this. She had read my memoir, got inspired. Let's combine the science of breakthrough science and treatments with, um, compelling stories of people like me living with bipolar, right. Mm. For inspiration mm. and crushing the stigma. So, where I'm going with that is that there's there's a number of sort of different theories of smoking guns <laughs> of what's causing this. And there's probably the truth. The truth is probably somewhere about all of them. But one of them is circadian rhythms is a, is a huge piece. And it turns out with people with bipolar, our circadian rhythms are more sensitive. So like travel across time zones is more dangerous. So we have to be more careful. Um, and the steady bed, steady rise is important that way. So now I know, well, I'm more a little more reticent to do big travel, tell you the truth. East or West, I can go North and South. <laughs> my kids, in, I'm in Massachusetts, my kids in California at school. I go out and visit them and watch them play Frisbee. Um, but I'm yeah. a little more careful about preparing for that before and after. And there's techniques you can, you can do. Yeah. Well, you, you've uh, learned, you've educated yourself and then you're taking steps, you know, to, to work with yourself and all these things you're mentioning really are good for all of us. And it's just. Exactly. Yeah, I know. And that's the, the good part is that again, my friend who calls me her, her North star for self-care is that what what we're learning? Those of us bipolar folks living with bipolar, um, and others who are who are doing good, healthy what I call practices for a healthy brain. Hmm. Um, like you said, those are good for anybody. I say to an audience, raise your hand if you're not having any stress out there. Yeah. You know, anybody raising their hand? No hands going up. Okay, these will be good for you. All these practices are good, and you know from your profession, from the work that you do, that that's true. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so it sounds like for you and probably for people with bipolar too, in general, like the healthy routine is so important. And that's part of going to bed at the right time, waking up at the right time, the self-care yeah. exercise. Yeah. I mean, yeah. some people with social rhythm therapy will say even, even being more rigorous about, you know, when I do my exercise, when I do diet, there's a whole other piece you mentioned, um, nutrition. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of research with bipolar now and what's now being framed uh, as metabolic psychiatry. Oh, well, and um, and there there are um, different theories around uh, supposedly with with bipolar. It can be that the, the mitochondria has um, there have been mutations in mitochondria. Long story short, um, it can be that a low carb diet or even a keto diet is better for people with bipolar. We get into that mm -hmm. in detail if you want. Also, microbiome, mm -hmm. uh, what a guy in, in Ireland calls the um, psychobiotic. The gut brain connection has been established now as you know yeah. deep science, mm -hmm. uh, and that's you know so sauerkraut and yogurt, you know mm -hmm. <laughs> miso or kombucha, whatever you like. But maintaining your, a good uh, good healthy gut flora and all that stuff because that's where your neurotransmitters are created in your gut. 
Um, mm. There's a lot. So there's a lot of science that is um, credible science that is suggesting good behaviors that we can do, which I think is really positive because it gives us agency over our own health, which is important. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. These yeah. are all really important things. I mean, one thing I'm kind of tracking is all these lifestyle things, nutrition, your pecs. I love that. Like self-care stuff. It's helping you maintain, helping you stay healthy, helping you be your best. But it wasn't those things in and themselves weren't enough when you were in a real depression episode. Do you want to? Yeah. For a bipolar depressive episode. Yeah. And that that. I'm sorry, Julian, say it again. Oh, what, what did help you get out of that sense of depression and yeah. Well, ultimately, the thing that happened was that I had to get my right diagnosis and get my medication. Um, and it was it was humbling for me in a, in a good way. It's like, you know, it's almost, I don't know if this is the appropriate metaphor, but like in, in AA, as I understand it, I, I haven't been to AA, but there's the part where you got to surrender to a higher power. Yes. It's for me, there was surrendering to this thing is stronger than you're going to handle, girlfriend, mm. with all your good behaviors. And you have you know, a genetic proclivity and take this medicine is going to help you. Mm. And it took me elders who are respected uh, telling me that I mentioned in the TED talk mm. um, for me finally to say, and I was desperate at that point because I had little kids and I had to figure out how to get my act together um, for me to finally say, okay, there's no shame in this. And when I finally got the right medication, which took some time because the original wrong diagnosis, um, you know, it changed my life. Yeah. Night and day. Night and day you, okay. You notice it. You mentioned you so said like, like like taking the wrong medication early in your life, you could feel your brain like like your physical like physically like shaking or. Yeah, I had some really bad experiences, and I know a lot of people like me who are living with bipolar and other mental health challenges. I believe have because, you know, I think it's they're difficult to diagnose. It's an it's an art, not a science. In some ways, getting the diagnosis right. And, you know, people are, some psychiatrists are really skillful and they've studied bipolar and others haven't, and they're going to get it wrong. Those psychiatric medications are strong, you mm-hmm. know, and even people take Prozac and they, they could eat it like aspirin, you know, because it gets so easily prescribed by primary care. who are just trying to do something to help this person. And it can be, it can cause a lot of trouble. And- um, I did have one medication that made my brain feel like it was shaking inside my skull. It was terrifying. Um, remember what kind of medication it was? I probably shouldn't say because it might help somebody else, you know, right. that's the problem. I, I, I've learned that I'd be a little careful about Nate cause I'm not a doctor. Right. So I can't, <laughs> I, it's important for me not to make, um, uh, comments about, about specific medications. Otherwise I can tell you the ones that are working for me, but right. what's working for me are, are mood specific bipolar specific medications that you would com- that you would somebody would prescribe for someone with bipolar. And mm. that's what I didn't get until I was diagnosed properly. Because again, doctors were thinking that I just had major depression. And since you got the right diagnosis and have been on this right medication, has that been a consistent, consistently positive, consi- consistent with the medication and consistent positive outcome? Yeah, it's a great question. It was consistent for eight years. And then I had a trifecta of uh, going through menopause, which it turns out for your older female listeners is a huge risk. Mm. Um, it's now well known that basically perimenopause, the hormones are going like this. Shh, that is a risk factor for a bipolar relapse. So that plus my mom was dying at the same time. Plus I had a mm. shoulder injury, which was keeping me from sleeping. And now we've learned that sleep deprivation is a very risky trigger. So it's like those three things were, you know, three strikes and you're out. Um, but luckily we're able to tweak my medication. And once I think I got through menop- like through the whitewater of menopause and since then another eight years or so, I've been well. Great. Thank God you. Willing, knock wood. It will continue. Yeah. No more, no more menopause. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate you sharing and being honest and um, transparent about it all. And I think it's so helpful. And one of your things is to try to get rid of the stigma that we have around these kinds of issues. And you're, you're doing that just by sharing, but I just, I think one of the ways in which our, I think, you know, that would help more and more people is more and more people talking more openly about their journey with psychiatric medication. Like yeah. You shared, you found the right one. You had eight years. It was good. You had three big life stressors, for lack of a better word. And of course, that's going to yeah. affect anyone. Yeah. Uh, and then you you adjusted. And, and I tweaked it. it and I got better yeah. Uh, again. Yeah. We added lithium, which is a classic bipolar medication. We had a little homeopathic amount and that made all the difference. That made a difference. Um, and yeah, that's what's called subtherapeutic. There's a whole other story on lithium because it's it is um it's got a bad name and it's actually the best drug. 
It just has to be monitored closely. And again, I shouldn't say best drug because I'm not a doctor, but it's um, it is in the literature. It will show that the use of lithium has been consistently positive for people with bipolar. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's a natural element and you can get it from there's like certain hot springs that will have like lithium in the water. And yeah, and that's shown to make those people happier. But that's not going to work for again. You're going to have to get a diagnosis and a, and a, um, a prescription from a from a doctor, ideally a psychiatrist. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so just to kind of say, maybe it's obvious, but maybe it's just worth saying over and over again, if you, whatever, wherever we find ourselves, like whatever issues we're having, you know, that it's, it can be so helpful for people to hear that it's not their fault. Um, it's not your responsibility. No one chooses to be depressed. No one chooses obviously to have bipolar or any of these kinds of mental health struggles or physical issues. And, and that piece can help take the shame away. Um, it's interesting to think about, like, we tend to identify more, I think, with our minds, like, you know, it's like me, I'm over here. And that I think is connected with that sense of shame when we have something more emotionally or mentally off versus physically, you know, if someone breaks an arm, there's right. usually not a lot of shame around it. But if someone, you know, has a mental health diagnosis, there is a lot of shame and stigma. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it, I, I say in my TED talk and other places in, in the book is like, the brain is a physical organ, right? You know, if, if I had, if I had heart disease and needed to take, you know, blood, what would you call it? Like, um, uh, blood pressure medication, no one would judge me. If I had asthma and I needed an inhaler, no one would judge me. If I had diabetes and I was taking insulin, no one would judge me. Why am I judging myself or anybody else judging me for, uh, a brain challenge, which is also a physical organ and in bipolar, in the case of bipolar, it's the most inheritable psychiatric challenge, right? And that means it's genetic, friends. There's a lot of genes involved here. So you wouldn't, you know, criticize yourself for having brown hair. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, it's this is a genetic factor. And you know, my mentor who said, "Look, you know, you've done nothing wrong. There's no shame in, shame in this. You don't deserve to suffer. This is genetic. This is physical. Get help." And it took, like I said, because of the shame and the stigma, it took a long time for me to be willing to accept that. And I just wish I had a lot sooner. Mm. So um, earlier in your life, you weren't wanting to accept, um, but you got the diagnosis of depression, but you didn't want to accept bipolar. I or... didn't even, yeah, I, you know, I, I didn't want to think that I needed to have medication because I was a purist, right? Mm -hmm. And my mom had been on it and I was judgmental of her, not anymore, you know, but when I was a kid, I was, right? Um, and I wanted to be different. I didn't want to have to rely on meds, all the kind of classic sort of new age stuff, if you want to tell the truth. Um, uh -huh. and so it took me a while to be willing to get over that. And it was kind of, I guess it was, you know, you're the, you're the psychologist, you probably a whole field day with this, Julian, but <laughs> I think there's, um, a, a part of a younger part of myself that wanted to think I could control it, you know, and if I just did all the right yeah. diet and exercise, I could control it. As I said before, it's surrender to something greater than you. But once I got that, you know, I flipped it to bipolar pride. Because we're survivors, you know, we're Phoenix from the ashes. We have we have lived through incredible hell. And if we're on the other side, if we're not on the other side of it, you're still a hero. But, you know, it, it's something in my judgment now, something to be more proud of than to feel shame about. And this is a lot of the mission of the book and the film is to crush the stigma, take yeah, the stigma. Of these yeah, challenges. you're flipping it. You're flipping the script on it. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And um, maybe just to share with listeners, it sounded like in your journey, you felt normal, so to speak, on top of the world, doing great in school. And then at some point in undergrad, it started. Yeah, in my senior year. I think that's a uh, senior uh, college. Yeah, I think that's a important point to share, just because a lot of times that can happen. Like, you know, someone like there can be an onset around that age for some reason, like a lot of people with schizophrenia, like who later develops schizophrenia, they won't notice anything until 18, 19, 20, early 20s. Right. Uh, yeah. 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 That was actually one of the questions that my doctor diagnosed me asked. He said, did you have your first incident like before age 25? And the answer was yes. So for me, I, you know, I had this standard challenging childhood that anybody has uh, nothing <laughs> that would necessarily need to generate bipolarity, but I was a very high functioning kid and I won all kinds of awards and I went to fancy college and I had a 4 in science and I was, you know, athlete, varsity athlete, friends, the whole, the whole gestalt, right? I was heading to med school in the fall. And then all of a sudden on my 21st birthday, almost exactly, it was like a flip switch, uh, a switch flipped. Mm. And um, suddenly everything that was easy for me, they became this complete cognitive incapacity. 
you know, where I couldn't um, find my way to class. I couldn't add two plus three. I, there was there's confusion and I couldn't get out of bed and didn't want to see friends. And it happened so fast. It was like some like just like that. that like a sense. switch yeah. had flipped. That's a fascinating part of your story that um, it's a little surprising to me. Like you were great at math. You said you had an 800 SAT math score. And then I did. when this switch flipped, it was hard to multiply, you know, or yeah. do math or that's amazing. Yeah, it's yeah. it's really stunning what happens. I mean, I like I had four oh, I barely got through college. I only had one class to finish and I really couldn't finish it, but the guy let me by with a C minus. Um it, it was, I mean, I later in later in life I tell talk about the story, another incident where like it literally took me three hours to unpack two bags of groceries. Mm, wow. Literally, because I don't know where how to put the tomatoes over here or the or the um you know cereal over there. Uh, if I'm in a grocery store trying to figure out which peanut butter to pick becomes completely impossible. Wow. Um, there's, you know, dishes. I don't, I don't do dishes cause I don't want to do them. I don't do them cause I cannot do them mm. because the sequencing of, you know, figuring out, or let's say unloading a dishwasher. So now when I unload the dishwasher, I'm happy because <laughs> I can friggin' unload the dishwasher. Love I that. could not yeah. figure out where a spoon or fork or a knife went. It's a, it's a, it's a major cognitive breakdown. People don't understand that. They think, oh, they're sad, mm. but it's actually the brain's broken. So I like to talk about it as a broken brain rather than just emotional or, you know, yeah, if your emotions are tr crash, but it's really, I think, because the brain's not working and it's terrifying too. Yeah, it does sound terrifying. I mean, it would make yeah. sense that if that switch got flipped and all of a sudden all these tasks that you were able to do without thinking about it were so hard and doing math was, you know, when you're in school and worried about failing out. I mean, it would make sense that you would feel depressed just based on that, all, all that yeah. stuff. Yeah. I don't know exactly like which the relationship, you know, I know the brain is broken and the depression is there. I'm not sure what the connection, the depression is severe, severe, severe. Like in my case, again, with bipolar two depression, which is the bipolar without the mania, there's um, extreme, uh, whatever the opposite of hypo, it's hyper. There's, mm -hmm. um, I don't have, uh, you know, you want to sleep 14 hours a day. You don't have any energy. Your body literally feels like it's like moving through molasses. You mm -hmm. don't have, like I was a good athlete. You don't have the coordination that you normally have. Um, so there's a lot to that whole, the whole package. And then there's, there's these horrible voices that are, that are shouting at you too. Um, and I, and I can tell you because I've done other kinds of work we talked about before we got on that in some, some people who have an inner saboteur, you know, the one that says you, you're no good. You don't deserve to be here. Yeah. They actually had a parent that told them that, you know, they learned it from somebody or church or somewhere. Sure. I didn't have that parent. My parents did other things, but I didn't have anybody telling me that I was no good. I, on the contrary, I had a lot of people lifting me up when I'm depressed, when I'm in that bipolar depression, it's like this, um, there's this walk-in horrific, brutal character. Who's like, whipping me all the time hmm. so there's a lot to it that's that's brutal um but then there's the other side you know and and there the the good thing about bipolarity is that is treatable in a way that some other um psychiatric challenges are not yeah that's the good news that's the good news and there's another piece of good news you want to hear it yeah because again through this research of the film we've been learning a lot um there's a lot of research uh, taking place in UC Berkeley with Sherry Johnson and, and Stephen Hinshaw professors about and others Michael Freeman um the creative 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 edge of bipolarity mm. people with bipolar tend to be disproportionately represented in creative fields yeah entrepreneurs disproportionately entrepreneurs of startups artists writers etc so there is a creative thing that's happening too yeah. Yeah. And that can be a good and beautiful thing. The positive side. Yeah. The positive yeah. side. So you were, when this originally happened, you were given the diagnosis of depression. I wasn't given any diagnosis because I didn't go to a psychiatrist. I went to therapists. They say, okay. yeah, you're depressed, but that's not like technically a diagnosis. I don't right. think. Okay. And then I would, my depressions would last for nine months and then, you know, I got better. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, um, and then I'd be better for a couple of years and then a depression would come for nine months. And Nine then, yes, my depressions oh, are very severe and very relentless and very unforgiving, merciless, yeah. you know? So I say, you know, luckily for me, and I didn't have the courage, I might say, to take my own life, but I understand people who do, and I never yeah. will judge that. 
because it's it's so horrific to live with. Um, and this is again, get the book out there, get the film out there because it didn't have to happen. It, it, the right diagnosis could have got me better much sooner. Mm. You know, the guy who knew what to ask for got me better in 10 minutes, got, got the right diagnosis. And I was better very shortly after that with the right medication. Yeah. It's an important message. And, um, yeah, I mean, part of your, it's, I think it's just good to like consider how we live in this big complex world and, for some people out there receiving a particular mental health diagnosis can feel like uh, a burden, a source of shame. It can feel unhelpful in different ways. Yeah. It can become an identity that um, that isn't helping them. But in your case, getting this accurate diagnosis, the right medication, it gave you a sense of ownership and power and um, kind of flipped the script like, you, like you're sharing. Yeah, well, because I got better. But I'm very, I'm very, uh, I think semantics are really important. So mm -hmm. I never say I am bipolar or I have bipolar. Good. I say I live with bipolar or I live with bipolar brain or have a bipolar brain. I want to very be disaggregate the, uh, the bipolarity is important, a very important informant of my life path, yes. but it's not who I am. There's not an equal sign. So it's again, it's kind of a both end. It's like, yes, I want to own that. I, that I have this experience that I live with this thing, but it's not who I am. Yeah, that's so important. Uh, that's great. Yeah. 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 And I think a lot of um, mental health diagnosis, mental health stuff is, is a spectrum. You know, depression, we all experience it to some degree. Um, anxiety, we all, you know, all these things are, are on this spectrum Yeah, that we can relate to. But there are some, and I think what you're sharing is one of them, bipolar 2, probably bipolar 1, is a real, like, brain difference, right? There's a physiological mm -hmm. difference. Yeah. Someone who has it and someone who doesn't. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's a physiological difference. And, you know, is it, um, is it, I'm looking at this poster I have here for the, for the movie made, you know, is it caused by mitochondrial dysregulation, by brain circuitry, by the gut microbiome, by um, genetics, by circadian rhythms, or is the answer yes, you know, but there is a constellation of factors that lead to a different kind of brain, a neurodivergence, like they like to say now, neurodiversity. And there's ways to, to take care of it. Yeah. And one of them you're sharing, like it's very inheritable. So your mother. Yes. And my grandfather and your grandfather. Okay. That's good for people. And to that know. was huge too. Like it's simple diagnostic. Do you have a family history of moods of moods challenges or mood spectrum issues, you know? And the answer was, yeah. Is it stunning that the previous psychiatrist hadn't asked me? It's the yeah. first question that should be asked. And also in primary care, like I would hope your brother's listening to this right now. I don't know what kind of doctor he is, but it's like, okay, let's look at this person's depressed. What kind of depression do they have? It could be a bipolar depression. Let's ask a few questions. When did this first happen? Under 25, check. You know, do you have a family history? Check. Were you given an antidepressant? Did it make you seem to make you better and then make you worse? Check. Did you get irritable? Yep. Okay. You have bipolar. <laughs> you have a form of bipolar. It's not that hard for I think that kind of screening to go on and those screens exist yeah, in the public yeah. domain. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they definitely exist. Um, and for you too, all your colleagues, Julian, people will come to you. I mean, I had my therapist was literally in tears after mm -hmm. I got my in tears and apology. She was a wonderful therapist uh, crying. I'm so sorry. I didn't know that this existed. Mm -hmm. This being bipolar too. Wow. Oh. Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing to note is the importance of the genetic inheritance that you touched on. And if we take away the stigma and shame, you know, for example, if your grandfather had depression or or something like what you're having, but he had a lot of the stigma and shame, he never shared about it or it was kept kind of secret in the family. Correct. That ends up, you know, we can see how the shame has passed through the generations and in our culture and makes the treatment and getting better more difficult, right? It's not. Yeah. Yeah, there's a quote from um, Terry Chania, author who lives with bipolar, and she says, uh, the disease feeds on shame, shame feeds on silence, and I will not be silent anymore. Mm, beautiful. That's part of my mission, too. Yeah. 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 yeah and then the, I mean, the other thing I like to do is just like normalize that we're all human. We all have our ups and downs. Um, I mean, in terms of depression, it's important to ask what, what you ask, like family history with mental health, but then also like if someone is feeling really down, really depressed, and maybe someone close to them died a couple months ago, then, oh, okay, of course, that makes sense. Yes. Do they, need, do they need medication? I don't know. I'm not a, you know, somebody who's prescribing medication, but I can approach that as like an appropriate 
human response to a tragedy or difficulty sure. or something as um, an ongoing yeah. condition, right? So, absolutely. I mean, I would hope somebody in your role, Julian, would see if this is persisting. Yeah, and this is debilitating, and this is you know leading to suicidal ideation or worse, or if this is you know nobody has wanted to get out of bed for six months, or the partner reports that they can't do the dishes anymore, then you see it's not just about the death of the family. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, I mean, we really need to like build uh, resiliency and strengthen ourselves, and to be able to handle the the difficulties in life. And I think what what can often happen is someone's going through life and they're, they're doing good. They're doing okay. They're managing. And then difficult things have happened and they haven't fully, maybe they haven't dealt with them in the healthiest way or processed them or kind of shove them under the rug. And then at some point that dam breaks and maybe they are meeting all the clinical diagnosis for depression. Um, but it could be more a matter of just like an overall lifestyle change, right? Like long-term yeah. getting healthier having better perspective and attitude. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, that can be the case for depression. And again, I don't, I don't know completely because it's not what I live with, nor am I a doctor or therapist by training, but I think part of my important message is that if this is a bipolar depression, you may need to get the full, you know, the full gestalt of all four things, mm. the medication therapy support and, and good behaviors pecs. Um, and that, and there's no shame in that, right? Absolutely. It's a, it's yeah. a, it's a brilliant gift. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness. Yeah. You know. Well, maybe, maybe it would be helpful for people listening. If you want to go a little bit more into the pecs and maybe just share some of your personal favorites or the ones you found most impactful in terms of, of those kinds of, um, sure. lifestyle things. um, yeah, well, if I, I'll just go from the beginning. So for the first is P, uh, and I know you promote all these kind of things too, Julian, but. Uh, on the physical level, so we got to move. You know, the first thing I do when I get up is yoga. That covers physical and spiritual. But, um, you know, so to get into our bodies and then really almost every day without exception, I'm doing something aerobic. I just have to. Nice. So it's you, you hiking or swimming um, and depending on the season, if it's the winter out here and we got snow, uh, I'll be skiing cross country, you know, if, or, or sk ice skating. If it's the summer, I might be rowing. Um, but doing something... Aerobics are a really important antidepressant or prevention, right? Getting the whole endorphin thing going. So that's physical, move your body. E is for emotional, social, emotional connection. And much as Zoom was good for the plague, um, we really need to be with real people. So I I would, uh, you know, encourage people if they're having a hard time to make dates with your friends. Like I, one of my friends, when a psychiatric nurse friend, when I was coming out of my last depression, she said, you should not have any morning where you don't have a date hmm. because you got to get yourself out of bed. So for me, I have like my, my hike and write date, my date with my friend of mine to walk every Monday morning. Oh, nice. And, okay. Yeah. Um, that covers the emotional and the physical, right? Yeah, so you could be, be efficient that way. Just a add a piece of that. If you have a date like that with a friend or another person, obviously there's this accountability piece you've put on your calendar. I and mean, there's a lot of ways yes. that that can. Yeah. It gets you up and out. Like, yeah. you know, it's a cold New England day. It's 20, 20 degrees outside. I'm not going by myself, but I'm meeting Mara. So I'm going, you know? Nice. Yeah. Um, so the, the emotional social piece. And for me, I, when my mom was dying, my next door neighbor said, uh, she dragged me to the chorus, community chorus. Hmm. And that's eight years ago. I'm still in that chorus. I'll be singing oh, cool. tonight love that course. So what is that? That's emotional, social, right? It's also spiritual. Singing is amazing. Um, so there's all kinds of research on that where you, you, um, you're, uh, you literally like vibrate at the same frequency oh, with the people that you're singing with. Um, and then, uh, the creative piece is, you know, sort of stuff that are getting you out of your left brain. So whatever you love to do, it might be, cooking or writing or singing or drawing or um, dancing or whatever, whatever you do that kind of connects you with something. Um, maybe it's the right brain. I'm not, I'm not sure, but something more generative and creative like that. Uh, so for me, I'm a writer, I'm a singer, uh, I'm a cooker from time to time. <laughs> I'm, I'm fake on Fridays. Um, you may have something different, you know, you may be ceramicist or you may, what's your, what do you like to do, Julian? For, for creativity? Yeah. Um, I actually, I love music. I play guitar and I've been, um, DJing. So I've been getting more into oh, beautiful. creating nice. like, sound journeys and sharing music in that way. And yeah, it's um, great. 
yeah. So that's creative. And then spiritual is, you know, some people have a spiritual practice. It might be meditation, might be yoga, might be going into the woods and listening. Um, I also unplug on Friday nights for 25 hours, more or less. I have a Shabbat practice. Um, And I find that to be extremely healing where I unplug from, um, you know, work and try to make stuff happen and shift to receptivity and gratitude and, um, you know, being out in nature in a kind of uh, flow time as opposed to, you know, work mode. So that's a whole other story. I actually wrote another book about that um, called Secrets of the Seventh Day. Where'd it go? I usually have one here. Uh, so anyway, those are my things, physical, emotional, creative, and spiritual. It's um, it, it becomes, uh, you know, kind of the art of healthy living. Right. And yeah. not everybody has the freedom and the flexibility, the privilege to do all that stuff all the time. Right. You know, but even if you can do something, it's going to help. Yeah. Well, say, say the name of your book again. Uh, the book, the book that I wrote for this, uh, I wrote, my book is Brainstorm from Broken right. to Blessed on the Bipolar Spectrum. That's the memoir. And I hope you'll pick it up. Um, you can get on Amazon. It's getting really great reviews. So I'm proud and happy about that. that. Uh, very moving. But you mentioned another book that you'd written. The about? other book is called Secrets of the Seventh Day. Okay. And that's about, that's the part about Shabbat and unplugging. Um, yeah. Gratitude practice. Gratitude practice is a big piece of spiritual practice, I think. Absolutely. That's a great one to share with people. Gratitude. Are yeah. People what's working as opposed to what's not. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing the spiritual piece in, um, you know, in the pecs. And I think um, like meditation, mindfulness, Buddhism has been a big part of my life. And there's just, there's a way in which um, we can connect with, I don't, I don't love the word spirituality, but we, it doesn't seem like we have the right language or better words at this point. Um, but yeah. like, there's a way in which an atheist or a secular or even, you know, a scientific materialist can connect with spirituality through logic, through reason, through, through nature, right? Through what? Yeah. Nature. That's what I say. I say, yeah. Yeah. Unplug from our screen, disconnect from technology so we can reconnect with nature, you know, and, and it's so clearly that place where you can go out and be expansive Mm-hmm. And connect to something greater than yourself, right? That's really the thing. It's expansiveness and connecting to something greater than yourself. I was um we we're researching for the film, and there's this the guy in Ireland I mentioned who um coined the term psychobiotic. And he talks about the uh, unholy trinity of the microbiome and stress. And um, I can't remember the third one, it'll come to me. But anyway, point being with the stress and what we were just talking about, he said the best thing you can do is move to the country and get a dog. <laughs> <laughs> which is what I did. I moved the country and got a lab about 30 years ago. So I live out in the woods and that I don't think I could really survive living in the city, tell you the truth. Interesting. Yeah. That's, you know, sometimes changing our circumstances, our environment, our living situation can be, can be the best thing to do. You know, we got to know that about ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. The calm of it's good. Good. Yeah. And the trees and there's something about nature, like even a dog, right? They're always in the present moment. They're not... They might they might have their good days, good moments or bad moments, but they're not stuck in the past or the future the way that humans are. Right? No, they can't be. A, <laughs> yeah. So yep. I think I think just being around an animal like that helps us to to connect with that too. So. Yeah, my fourteen year old lab is definitely my teacher. He's like he's like he's got heart disease. He doesn't know. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> he's out there partying. You know, he's out in the woods. He's a happy guy. <laughs> Love that. Yeah. Well, it's been great talking to you. You know, I guess when piece to to add here is you know to not identify with it like you have this bipolar too but it's not who you are so you're careful about the language you use i think that's such an important piece and they're just the way that we identify and the way that we we think about these things and that's that's what's gonna can take away the stigma it can take away the shame it can give that healthy sense of pride and it can um there's just been there's so much value that i've seen in people i work with of just like asking like what like getting really clear and really looking closely, what is your responsibility? What choices have you made and what haven't you made? And a lot of our our suffering and our minds are coming from, yeah, that inner critic, the self-blame, the thinking there's something wrong with me. We're taking on some kind of ownership for things that we actually didn't do or say or even think. Like it's not coming, it's not our fault, you know? Yeah. I wanna I wanna leave you then with um the opposite of that, which is bipolar pride <laughs> that I um that I mentioned a little bit ago. And um, so basically when I was, I was writing this book and I was still terrified because of Sigma, my heart would still pound, you know, should I put it out there or not? And my wonderful editor says to me, she said, okay, 
here's what you're going to do. You have, you've got this assignment you're going home and you're writing. I'm bipolar and a better person because of it. Mm, right. Love that. So, so I, um, I wrote that essay and I came up with four things and I was done with the essay. I pressed send on publishing the book because she was right. So you got to ask me, what are the four things? <laughs> what are the four things? So um, the first one is uh, a, a kind of emotional fearlessness. Mm. Is like because because I've been to hell and back. There's nothing that you can do that's going to scare me off as my friend. So I can be a, a worthy guide, a worthy a worthy companion, if mm. you're in a hard place. Um, another one is uh, compassion. It's related to the first, but it's kind of like there, but for the grace of God, you know, I could be in the streets. I could have a needle in my arm. I could be in jail. Not that I'm judging any of those things, but that could be me. And therefore I will not judge you. Right. And then the third one is discipline. Like I was saying before about, you know, North star on self-care and PEC. So you could be an inspiration for your friends doing all this good, good behavior discipline. Um, and then the last one is gratitude, you know, because when you've been to hell and back, um, every minute that you're healthy is a miracle hmm. and it really is a magnificent life, you know? So, so those are the things. And, uh, I do feel proud of that. And I, I do feel, um, proud of my bipolar companions, my companions who also live with bipolar, that they're survivors in this way and trustworthy, disciplined, thoughtful, yeah. and grateful companions. I love that. It's so positive and it's true. You're speaking from truth. So. Yeah. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. It's great to to share with people. And there's a lot of resources out there. I'll I'll link all your stuff in the, the show notes below. Any um any last words you want to share with with people? Thank you, Julian. Um, I think the main thing is uh two. One, if you or someone you love has been suffering with a devastating depression and you're not getting better, consider that you might have a bipolar depression. That's thing one. And thing two is um you will get better. Mm, nice. You will get better. I love that. Yeah. Okay, well, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me.